Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Vandy Sports Podcast. Here's your host, Chris Lee. Commodore fans, on your feet, it's time to anchor down. Welcome to the Monday edition of the Vandy Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Lee. Chip Frederick joins me today as we'll talk Commodore baseball. The news today is presented by our friends at Sutherland and Belk, a Nashville-owned injury law firm. If you or a loved one has been hurt in any type of accident, please call Taylor or Russell at 615-846-6200. See what your rights are and if they can help. Vanderbilt beats Arizona by a 7-6 score in its first College World Series game. That sets up a matchup on Monday night with North Carolina State. That game will be 6 Central. You can watch it on ESPN. Chip Frederick joins me on a Monday morning. The Commodores will play on Monday night against NC State. We will get into that. We will rewind Vanderbilt's win over Arizona, but first, let's talk about the thing that's getting a lot of play. LSU's coaching search is still going on. Mike Bianco, who I think ending last week everybody thought was taking that job, has signed a four-year extension with Ole Miss. Of course, the speculation, uh, you know, LSU's AD has gone hot and heavy after big names. He did it in women's basketball. Tim Corbin's name keeps popping up which is also the same for several other coaches in Omaha. Look, you and I talked about this off podcast. Neither of us think that Tim Corbin is going to take the LSU job. I would be astonished if he's even talking to LSU at this point. Now, agents might be a different thing. I guess the bottom line, neither of us feel like he's going to LSU. That keeps coming up, but if I'm him... I absolutely use this to get whatever I need from that school right now because that's how you get things done at Vanderbilt. And that probably, I I think, would include some improvements to the seating, whether that's a a luxury box. I've heard that mentioned. I think that uh, seating over the grandstand would be great. It would not only provide some shade, uh, and it gets really hot down there in May and June a lot of times, but also would give you some more seating. To me, if I'm Tim Corbin, that's what I'm after. I'm, I'm holding out there as a little bit of a carrot to get what I need because I just don't think it makes sense for him otherwise. Yeah, I think there's some things at that school that annoy him. I don't think they're enough to make him leave, but if I am him, what he's always done is leverage those things to get what he needs for his program, and I would expect that's where this is going. Yeah, it's kind of weird that we're talking about this when the you know it's that it's it, I mean, it's a distraction could be a distraction, Chris. But um, you know, and and LSU is sort of the big bad bully on the street who you know there's there was some talk about their AD do some uh, some flight tracking that was showing up in Omaha with their Learjet, and I know the Kendall Rogers mentioned that and tweeted that out, so that caused some pandemonium, I think, among some people who's you know, teams had coaches in Omaha. We have to understand that the, 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 it's just like the final four in basketball. You got a lot of division one coaches who are in Omaha right now. There's meetings that go on. So if LSU is talking to someone in Omaha, it could be a number of people, number of coaches, not necessarily the, the eight that are in that are currently there playing. So yeah, you know, it's, um, Tim's name has was surfaced before with names in the conference. It was Auburn at one point, and uh, it was LSU. And I, w- I happened to be with Tim the afternoon, ironically, that we're talking about this, when he told Skip Berkman, no, I was in the room 
waiting to have a meeting with some Vanderbilt former players and some people at the champion circle. And he ran about 30, 45 minutes late and we were sitting there waiting on him and it got to be a little uncomfortable. We started looking at each other going, wait a minute, are we getting ready to lose our coach? And he came in the room and apologized and said, he just got off the phone with Skip Bertman and, and told him that he was not, uh, he was withdrawing his name from consideration. So this has happened more than two times that we had the flirtation with Oregon that Oregon kind of used that we're starting a baseball program and uh, we'd like for you to be a consultant for us. And anybody could see through what that was happening when you hire a consultant, but really that's the guy they really want to be their coach. And that was a pretty shrewd move by the Oregon folks. And I think he turned those overtures down so that there, and there's probably countless ones that we don't know about, but you know, I would really think it would be extremely uh, unlike Tim Corbin to even be addressing this right now, talking about it. The guy's focused. He's got where these guys are eating every day. He's got where they're training. He's got what time they're on the bus. There's a text chain, I'm sure, to all of them, like when they're going. It's just it is. he is a very methodical person. And anything to cause a distraction on what he's trying to achieve uh, would be just that and be an extreme distraction and something that's out of character for him. So unless, and I, and telling someone and putting a cap on this really, um, from just my honest feelings and what I would know, if Tim were that miserable that he would be talking to someone in the middle of the college world series, I think you would know about it. And I think I would know about it. Um, and I just don't think that's happening now, what LSU ends up doing and you know, the, they're coming into town, the old, coming in the Midwest and going to hire their coach and cause a big scene and all that. I think it's a little ridiculous. I think they could wait, but you know, their coach might be there who they want, but I don't think right now, Tim's going to listen Now he could have agents talk and that's fine. But anything beyond that, I think is, is pure conjecture. And I think, I don't think it's happening in this situation. I, I would be shocked if it, if it happened, because I think, in the long run, yes, he could use some things to improve the program, and, and that's his right, and he's earned that right. But right now, he's focused on winning a national championship. Well, I know him well enough, and you do too. One thing that matters to him is atmosphere. He likes lots of people in seats. He likes, I mean, I, I know that the the school's COVID stuff, that bothered him. I, I think that was pretty obvious by his public comments. And I, I think that anything that that gets in more fans, uh, that gets a better atmosphere. I mean, they're the ones that had to orchestrate the things with the football players uh, to, to get the crowd there and loud and everything. I think those are the things, that, like if he left, it wouldn't be for the money. It would be for that atmosphere like you can get at other places just, that just isn't there. Now, again, do I think he's leaving for that? No, but I think if you're Vanderbilt, that's where you address stuff. You address getting more people in that park and making them louder, and I think – if you do stuff like that and you just minimize the nonsense that he has to deal with at times, I think those are the things uh, that that probably bother him. And it's not going to be a matter of, well, LSU offered me $100,000 more, so I'm taking the job. If Tim Corbin were to leave, which, again, I don't think he would, but I think that would be why if he did. Yeah, and, and people laugh and around the SEC and make potshot comments about, you know, Vanderbilt only has, you know, so many fans, 8,000 fans or whatever it is. And a lot of them are the older generation and are they generating new fans? Well, let me tell you, uh, uh, there are fans that I know. There are people that I know that are not Vanderbilt football fans or basketball fans, but they're absolutely Vanderbilt baseball fans. 
and he has created a almost a separate entity of section of fans that love him and love the baseball program and love what the program stands for and how they uh, um, you know are patriotic and they wear the uniforms on Sunday to to support the military and the way they his teams behave and act and dress and walk and talk and all those things. And so the you know it, of those, let's just say there's for for conversations sake, if there's ten thousand Vanderbilt fan, true diehard Vanderbilt fans that buy season tickets for everything, you got to remember there's there are those out there just like I said who who will who are in his camp and would support him. So no matter what, I mean he's their favorite son, and above all of any coach and the favorite coach they've ever had there, Tim Corbin's it. So. If there was ever any movement, it's not going to be about money. Vanderbilt has the ability to do that. I think, you know, he's he's the Nick Saban of the SEC in baseball, and Vanderbilt has an opportunity to keep him and reward him, and I think they will. He, he's the highest-paid coach in the Southeastern Conference right now. I think that's pretty well documented in baseball. He deserves uh, to get something uh, above that. He deserves a raise. He deserves more better facilities if that's what he wants, and and raises for the assistant coaches and, and different things. If that's going to help his program at his age, he's not all, I mean, he's a few years older than me. I think he's 59 years old. So if, if someone's going to throw a bunch of money at him, if that's what's going to make him happy, I just don't see that being the, the main thing that is going to make his last four five, six, seven years, uh, be one that he's pleased with and wants to go out with. I don't think Tim's a guy who's going to coach, until he's 70 years old. I just don't see it. I think he said that publicly. So where does he want to spend the next four, five, six years, if that's what it's going to be? It could be less than that. It could be a situation where he wants to say, you know, I want to retire here, but I want to help um, pick the guy who who succeeds me. That could be something also. And and to leave it off for some, someone who's – leave it off in a better position uh, than when he found it. And, of course, he – when he founded the program and the facility was nowhere near the facility was already, already there because it was built under Roy Muburn. But the things that he've done uh, since then is, is remarkable and will forever be grateful. And there'll probably be a statue of the guy outside the stadium one day, recognizing his accomplishments and all he's done for Vanderbilt baseball. And you just, you just don't let those guys walk. All right, let's talk baseball. Vanderbilt gets a, Seven to six win over Arizona in its College World Series opener. Frankly, a game that most of the night it didn't feel like Vanderbilt was going to be to win, but yet it did. Uh, and frankly, winning game one is always huge in that event. What were your thoughts on that one? What a weird game, you know. What a what a weird emotional game that just sort of had the twists and turns back and forth that. You know, you almost the baseball gods, the karma gods. Uh, often, when you leave that many runners in scoring position, and you, you, you've got situations which you do things that you normally don't do, and and they come back and bite you. And I had that feeling, that eerie feeling, that when we kept leaving guys on in those late innings, it was going to come back to bite bite us, and it didn't because of the pitching staff. And you look at what a guy like Chris McIlvain coming in and doing what he did after giving the first pitch, he, he gets a, a double off the wall off of him, but he settles down and ends up, you know, dominating and striking out two and getting out of the inning. And I was really proud of Chris McIlvain. I was proud of Luke Murphy, how he threw as well. 
what can you say? I mean, Kumar Rocker, he threw five and two-thirds, and he gave up three Ernie's out of the five. But he didn't have that bad of a baseball game. He gave up five hits. But, you know, uh, Maldonado comes in and kind of keeps things steady with four strikeouts. Luke Murphy striking out six uh, of the ten guys he faced. And then you got McIlvain coming in. I was impressed with the pitching staff and how they handled things. And, and uh, that's what I'll remember about that game. I will, I, things I'll remember that head scratchers a little bit, Chris, uh, I, I don't know why Enrique Bradfield's not running. Um, I, he, he didn't run in the, in the super. He's not running here. It's almost like you'd be surprised if you, somebody came out and said, well, he's got a hurt hamstring or something. I don't think that's it, but you've got a guy who has stolen bases with, you know, just like dared to throw, you know, daring catchers to throw him out or daring pitchers to hold him on. And he had two opportunities to run and he didn't run on either one of them. Uh, that was a head scratcher a little bit. And, and um, you know, I know that it's been talked about that he has the green light to go, but I guarantee, I guarantee you there's also a signal in, in the third base coaching box with Tim Corbin that can put the stop sign on that. Uh, and maybe the last couple of weeks, he just didn't felt like he's had the jumps that he would normally get. Uh, but that's a guy who is, what, 49 stolen bases on the year and he didn't steal. Uh, that was a little bit of a head scratcher. Um, Cooper Davis pinch running for Leneve was something that was a little bit questionable because you, you take Leneve's bat out as the as the extra innings kind of piled on. Uh, Cooper Davis, not sure what his stats are. Let me look at him on stolen bases for the season, but, uh, he was, he's three of six, you know, he's not a speed demon over there. And, and you wonder why he was put over there if he wasn't going to go anywhere. You might as well just have Leneve over there. And then the fact that he didn't go when the ball was 15, 20 feet out in front of the catcher, that was a little head scratcher too. So I think it was, a my memory of the game was a, a game of survival, uh, the fact that we were the home team helped tremendously and that game as it wore on, it was just a war of attrition that finally we were able to get a break and, and get the ball off the fist, which, you know, was muscled out there by Jason Gonzalez, which, you know, when you look at the replay, it, it, it doesn't matter the run scores, but it's not one that you, you dream up that it was going to be a hot smash. Of course, he's got, he got his home run earlier, but that's what I'll remember. Just it was kind of an attrition battle. Two teams very good uh, that kind of just were fighting it off at the end. I will say, though, Arizona is a very good hitting team. My final memory of that is, is that we held that team in check pretty much uh, except for the first couple innings of the Rocker got in trouble. I was impressed with how the bullpen responded. It was costly in the, fin in the sense that we threw some, you know, three, three relievers. But with the day in between and the way the Omaha works, I think that that'll that'll be okay, and they, those guys can get back in the groove and possibly come back with Maldonado, possibly tonight if needed, with lighter on the mound and and to get a couple outs. Do you think? Yeah, I was going to ask you what do you what are your thoughts on whether they can get Maldonado and Murphy back tonight because they threw forty seven and forty eight pitches respectively. From an arm management standpoint, and especially with Murphy, like the velo is not the 97, 98, occasional 99 that we saw a couple weeks back. It is more 94 to 96, and so I'm a little concerned uh, with that when you see velo drop by a few miles an hour, especially late in the season, especially after a couple of games in which he threw a lot of pitches. I think there was one 
against Georgia Tech. I think he threw around 60. What are your thoughts on using those guys tonight? Well, you know, you've got Murphy showed in the SEC tournament a game against Ole Miss that he can throw more than you would expect. And, yes, his – you know Murphy's in a sense when he comes on and when the, in the supers and the and when he pitched in the in the regional when that guy can throw to three batters four batters whatever he, his stuff is pretty electric it's 98 99 and it wasn't that's the first thing I noticed the other night that I don't think he threw a ball he threw maybe one 95 mile an hour fastball but he like he said he was 94 so that was a little different from what I've what we've seen in the past Maldonado. If you recall, though, Chris, a couple weeks ago was the first time that he came back with just, you know, 16 hours worth of rest. He came, he showed back-to-back performances, giving that day in between. I'm not too worried about him that he's going to have with the rest, especially with the game being tonight. I think that helps, too. So I would think you would see Maldonado if needed uh, after lighter and, uh, you know, see how it goes there with Murphy. I think someone else maybe. With Murphy throwing 47 pitches, I think he's a little more durable, Maldonado is, than Murphy. So I think you still have McIlvain with 13, you know, pitches uh, that he threw. I think he'll be fresh. And and they, they got some other names, of course, down. You know, the, we also saw Riley was getting up, which was different uh, than we've seen ever seen Riley being the third starter. He was up in the pen during the game. So for those who are kind of in, and this is a fun thing for Vanderbilt fans to do, believe me, I've done it. And it's something that looking back at the history of what Corbin has done in the College World Series, I had a friend text to me and said, well, the perfect scenario would go rocker game one, lighter game two, rocker game three, which would be on Friday, and then lighter start the championship series in game one and have to pitch the third pitcher in game two and then come back with rocker. Well, and and, and you kind of can do that with the bracket and see how that would make a little bit of sense with days of rest but looking back and i forgot all about this chris if, if in being a person who follows through with his with his schedule and the way they think that's not what happened in the 2019 year um hickman started the friday night game against louisville the uh, the first elimination game i guess what is that called the winner's bracket yeah um, game so it was not a situation where they came back with Rocker. So, sure, if it if it works out that way, that's best because it saves your it saves for the following week the championship series. So, I know we're getting ahead of ourselves, but uh, if you look towards Friday, if we if we are successful tonight, that will be extremely interesting. What he would do on Friday night against the team that has to beat him twice. This season of the podcast made possible by Jody Jones, DDS, whose business is located at 55 Music Square East. Let me tell you a little bit about Jody. He's been a good friend to me and to the podcast. He also runs the best dentistry business in town. You can go see him today for all your general dentistry needs or your cosmetic needs. Jody is the guy who the stars in Nashville visit, whether that is movie stars whether that's music stars, coaches, athletes, all the people in town go to see Jody because his service is tremendous. The atmosphere is also nothing like you have ever seen in a dentist's office. It is more like what someone described to me as a tooth spa, and he's right about that. You feel relaxed the minute you go in. The people are friendly. The service is great. Jody is a former Commodore football player and a Vanderbilt football booster. Please go see him today. Thank him for his support of this show and tell him you heard about it on the Vandy Sports Podcast. 
Well, one difference is Mason Hickman 2019 is way better than what they've got this year, whether oh, yeah. that's Little yeah. or Riley. I would expect that would be Riley because, again, he's a creature of habit. But, you know, having said that, it didn't change anything in the regional either. We said, well, Presbyterian's a little different than what they've had. Uh, that was the easiest one they've had, maybe they've ever had, in, or excuse me, easiest first night opponent they've ever had in a regional that I can remember. But it didn't change what he did there. I bet you're right. I don't see him, I guess, rewinding and saying, "Hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw a rocker on Friday," uh, and then and then change it up. I expect he will go probably his three and four guys. You know, who knows? Maybe you could see one of those guys out of the bullpen later. But I'm with you. I don't think knowing Tim Corbin, it would be a surprise if he did it that way. Yeah, and and that's of course a lot of baseball to be played between now and then, and and I just see tonight's you know I guess this podcast is kind of like a pregame show we're doing because uh, with the game being on in here in a couple hours away, but uh, I, I I like the matchup with uh, Lighter tonight against North Carolina State. I think he'll be fresh. He's had enough rest there. Uh, you know, NC State is kind of riding a high here. They're a team who who started off kind of. Uh, slowly to say the it's taking it lightly in their season but they've got all the momentum and the confidence after what happened in game one against Arkansas and now they're riding a high so this tournament as Tim Corbin has mentioned before it's not the best team usually he wins this it's who's playing the best and we'll just see have to see how that you know comes to fruition the rest of the way you saw Tennessee coming in riding high in that ballpark they're playing in, hitting a bunch of home runs and bombs, and they're kind of just nice and relaxed, and, and they got shown them, uh, you know, the, the stage is pretty big in Omaha, and you got to get used to it, and they did not respond yesterday. So a lot of different things going on in, in Omaha right now in this second round of games, and it'll be interesting to see how they play out. All right, I'm going to quote a couple stats to you. I keep track of a thing that's called component ERA. Now, this is a formula on the major league level, so I don't know what tweaks you'd have to make on the college level uh, because usually the component ERA is a little lower than the regular ones. But Rocker's got a component ERA of 162, lighter 171. Real ERAs, 258 and 216 for those guys, respectively. Well, what does that mean? That means that if you usually give up a certain amount of Runners, and there are certain type of base runners, that's what your ERA should be. Both of them have got component ERAs that are lower than their regular ERAs, which suggests that you would expect both ERAs for both those guys to be under two, which they're not. Now, as you watch things play out, you kind of know why. Because when Rocker and Leiter get beat, it's not, well, they gave up two hits and a run in the first and and three hits and two runs in the second, and a run and a hit in the fourth. It's that big inning where they give up three or four at once. You saw it with Rocker against Georgia. In fact, that the start against Arizona reminded me a little bit of that, where they just jumped him right out of the gate, and you're going, oh my goodness, is this guy even going to get anybody out? I mean, you know the answer to that, but you know it just looked really horrible off the bat, and frankly, it felt like they scored more than the three they got off him, although his defense did not help him out in that one either. Point I'm getting at is that's the way this has happened all season. That's the way it happened for Kumar. He gave up runners in two quick clusters and just absolutely shoved in between. What do you make of that with just both of these guys with this tendency for this one bad inning where just – for three or four batters at a time, it just goes horribly wrong when it does. 
And usually, we've talked about this earlier, it's been early in the contest. It's been first, second inning, that, that problem inning for both those guys. And, and they get settled, and they end up – I mean, Leiter did that against Ole Miss. Leiter's done that several times when he just has that problem inning and rocker as well. I mean, the, the home run by Holgate was a bomb, and that was a momentum change uh, when Arizona went ahead there uh, after Vanderbilt had, had – tied the game and in the six I mean that got out of the yard quick and you wondered how you know if it was one pitch too many that he came in and and you know you hit a guy as as a former teammate you know I think that's when he had the hit batsman um the the batter before uh, I guess that was Cato am I correct is that who, who got hit yeah, yeah he got hit baseman. in the knee and I want to let me stop you there for a minute I want to ask you because I did not notice this live Somebody said that maybe he stuck his knee out a little bit. I don't remember exactly how far inside the pitch was, but I wanted your comment on that too. Well, ball, balls that are hit, balls that are uh, that hit batsmen in the batter's box that land on their feet or their kneecap, those are really hard for umpires to determine if the batter leaned in and let it. When you when it's like it hits you on the butt or it hits you in the in the back, those are where you see that. But when you've got a pitcher who throws, you know, um, a cutter or a slider and it lands at their feet or in their kneecap area, it's really hard for an umpire to make that determination, if that makes sense. And and I didn't see anything there by uh, Kobe Cato, the second baseman who got hit. So it was just weird how the game turned there. He hits him. I think there was – were there two outs when that happened? You just – you can't hit yep. guys. You can't hit guys with two outs especially when you are getting ready to probably come out of the game. If you, you know, if you get out of the inning, you're probably done. And then the next pitch was just up in, up in the strike zone and elevated and, and it was crushed by Holgate. So, but you know, once again, that was one of those twists and turns that happened in that ball game where the momentum went back and forth and the Commodores were able to respond with that big three run seven. So that's been kind of the trademark of this team that, when they've needed the offense to respond after Leiter or Rocker has kind of gone through a bad inning, they have almost immediately, if not an inning later. And there's innings where, you know, those two guys, those premier pitchers have, have picked up their offense when they haven't been able to get runs. They've held it right there. So those were two, you know, two things that I noticed about that, that outing. But yeah, the, the, I, I just think I feel good, Chris, about lighter tonight. And, and I usually just don't say this. I think all the components he's got, instead of having six or seven days rest, he's going to have nine days rest. He's going to be fresh. I think it's he's he's at a good place right now rest-wise and the number of pitches he's thrown in the last week or two. He's settled down. And, and the way he pitched against ECA last week, ECU, excuse me, was – was very promising. So I look for good things for him tonight. And boy, if, if you can get through these first two games, it's not going to be easy because you're, you're facing a team with NC state. has got a lot of momentum, but you talk about how it really sets up for you the rest of the week, where you get some breathing room, where you get some rest, where you get some training, where everybody else is playing and you're just sitting there waiting for them. And, and the way this format works it is a huge advantage winning the first two games. And on paper, when you have two guys like Rocker and Leiter, although Rocker didn't get the decision in the first game, he at least kept them close. It, it, is, um, it is a tremendous advantage when you can sit there and rest until Friday and have somebody have to beat you twice. Let's talk about the offense. If I'm scouting them right now for an opponent's point of view, 
I'm a little freaked out because they're winning games and their bats are not anywhere close to clicking like they're capable. Now, maybe that's a stupid thing to say because you get to this point and the pitching is better. But, you know, Isaiah Thomas, I just kept watching he and Keegan over and over and going, man, these guys are due for a big hit the last couple weekends. Really haven't come. Um, you know, Carter Young has, has been slumping other than that home run. They're really, you watch them. You know, C.J. Rodriguez, we've seen him hit better. They're winning games despite the fact that I think, and I don't mean this to be critical, this just happens with hitters. They go through spells, but this offense is not performing the way it's capable. And if those guys come around, which I would not rule out, my goodness, these guys are going to be tough to eliminate from Omaha. Yeah, and you look at, there, there's some holes, Chris, in this lineup right now. I'm not saying there's holes uh, that are um, permanent that cannot be fixed and not come around, but you, you look up and down the lineup, and and you have to look at who's playing compared to who was playing four weeks ago. Troy Leneve was not playing. Maybe it was five weeks ago. You have a guy, compa- let's just compare it to the 2019. I mean, those those spots were solidified probably week six of that season in 2019 of the SEC tournament of, of the SEC schedule from then on, not much changed from that point on. It was the same lineup every night in Well, you got Troy Leneve. He wasn't playing five, six weeks ago. Javier Vaz wasn't playing two weeks ago. Uh, you have Parker Nolan in the lineup who, although he's played in spotty situations, you had Colwick who was playing in that spot. So there's some definite um, situations where it's the consistency hasn't been there, just in familiarity as far as who's been playing, and that's not what you want. Uh, that's not what you want as a coach, but it's not a perfect world. They've been banged up. They've had injuries. You've had the handmate situation and then the and subsequent hand injury in, in the regional that you had with Colwick. So that's where I think you're seeing a little different uh, situation here for this team is that they just haven't had the consistency. But the up and down, they've got some guys who have had spotty performances at the plate, and you wonder where they've gone. Enrique Bradfield hasn't been as hot. I mean, you know, that guy is the spark plug that gets on the base, who can steal bases. And uh, would you say that he's in a slump? I don't know the official numbers. He was one for four the other night, but he had the big hit uh, against ECU, the double down the line. But he's kind of been up and down. So you're seeing these, what you want to see happen is these guys who haven't been where they're the holes that they come back and have a big game tonight and then get out there and work the kinks out in between tonight and Friday, hopefully if with a win tonight and onward towards the championship series. But there's some definite places in the lineup where you see some holes where they haven't been productive as they could be. And um, that's just part of working it out. I mean, Vaz is just sort of, it's almost like Vaz, in a sense, and Vaz has uh, come on the scene. It's almost like he didn't even, wasn't even on the team. I mean, he I don't know how many at-bats he had prior to two weeks ago. And he comes on and is holding his on in left field, but um, he's a new face. So there's new faces. There's guys coming back from injuries who are trying to get back in the lineup and some guys who have been struggling, you know, just making contact. And if all those things kind of come together, I think you'll see some positive things here in the next week. Well, with Pratfield, I don't – he's not in a slump. I, I put it this way. This is the best way I can explain it. 
he's Enrique Bradfield right now. He's not Enrique Bradfield exclamation point. Uh, and here's what I mean by that. I'm going back to the first game of the Super Regional. He reaches twice, one on a walk, one on an infield single. Uh, didn't steal any bases, struck out twice, which he doesn't do a lot. Uh, the second game, he walks to lead that game off uh, and then gets that big double where he knocked in a run late in between two ground outs and a strikeout. And against Arizona, he's one for four, but he did walk twice. But again, he's not running, so I, I, he's still getting on base, but he's not, and I don't mean this to be critical of him. I mean, a lot of times you are dependent on the signs you're getting from third base, but he's not been what he has been when it is really going for him at points of the year. Yeah, and and you had a backup catcher with Caden Hobson who came in for Susac. So that was a little puzzling, too, that when he was on base late in the game there, you had the number two guy. Now, maybe they just had scouting reports that that, that Hobson has a cannon back there, but uh, and, and it seemed to – it looked pretty obvious that Nichols and Vanelli, um, if that's how you say his name um, – didn't want any part of trying to hold him on, especially Nichols. So there was an, a di- discomfort on uh, – he just kept doing the step off, put the ball behind the back of his neck, and and that kind of – instead of throwing over there. So we'll see. That's going to be something to monitor. I'm very interested tonight to see if he does get in the running mode, if there's something going on there that he's not feeling as comfortable or if he's being told not to run. Uh, I I was expecting someone to answer, ask that question in the press conference and didn't get it. And that's okay. Uh, There's only got looked like 12, 13 minutes to ask questions. But uh, that was something that was a little puzzling to me that a guy that has been that prolific and he was getting the lead, Chris, right? I mean, Oh, he's getting huge leads. Yes. Yeah. And he just wasn't going. So that's a feel thing. And maybe, what the Arizona pitchers were doing of just taking him out of his rhythm was working and, and something they'll have to make some adjustments to going forward. Yeah, I was going to say the leads to me indicate he's not hurt or anything. I haven't seen it in his gate. He just, for whatever reason, um, is, is not running. But any more thoughts on the offense? Because I want to ask you some questions about Stanford and Arizona and some other areas of the bracket before we end. No, I, I just think that um... – you know, you look at what happened at the bottom of the lineup with Gonzalez having the big night, three for five with the home run, and it was, it was good to see that bottom part. You know, Vaz got on base. Uh, Rodriguez, you know, got up six times and, and, was, and was two for six. So that was – when you get that production out of the bottom lineup, that's always uh, a, a good thing to see when some other guys aren't hitting the ball and when you wait for those guys like Keegan and Young and – Laneve to to get back on, although that you know you look at the numbers of Laneve had two hits, but it's just getting those um, in that big park, getting those guys in the top of the order, drive the baseball the alleys and and get them on track, and, be, and hopefully it'll be a one through nine effort from all those guys, and they put it all together as one unit. Almost forgot the mailbag. Let's get a few mailbag questions first. Our mailbag is sponsored by Vanderbilt fan Josh Minton, an independent insurance agent operating out of Brentwood. Josh can take care of all your insurance needs. Call him today, 615-933-1979. Email him at josh at hqinsurance.com. Follow him on Twitter at joshymintonhq or facebook.com forward slash jdmintonhq. He's my insurance agent. Give him a try. Tell him you heard about his business on the Vandy Sports Podcast. And Arbor Door says, who do you think LSU will get as coach? Hmm. 
Uh, you know, I, it, I'd be guessing right now because I'm really not sure if they're trying to go young, Chris, or they're or they're looking for some just big splash name. Uh, I know that Bianco did, from what reports say, interview in Birmingham, um, which is an interesting place to interview. But uh, of course, he's since signed an extension. I think that Godwin has been interviewed, from what I'm told as well. Cliff Godwin at ECU. Uh, and he's got some LSU ties there. He was an assistant coach under Maneri. And that that has to be, uh, this has been pointed out by many people, uh, an interesting hire because you have the Skip Bertman factor, which he's still hanging around and has such an influence. And Bertman once, from what I've been told, an, an LSU guy. And then you have uh, that faction of former players and alumni who want someone with the LSU ties and what it means to be an LSU player or, what it means to be what those what it means to be a part of that program and the history and the nostalgia involved in that. Um, you you wonder if there's uh, McDonald at, at, at Louisville whether he creeps into the situation or not. I think he would be a a strong candidate and a good hire there. Um, but you kind of can hear you, you're hearing the same number. I mean Eric Bakic's name has been mentioned. I for some reason don't really see that. Um, and but it's just interesting to see the different the Ben McDonald's of the world who kind of been throwing some comments out there of who they think would be a good coach and who the others in the outside baseball world, the Kendall Rogers, the people on the national media side, who they think. So if you look at who they've interviewed, I mean, Godwin, they're not going to get Bianco. He signed an extension, whether it's somebody right now in Omaha or not one of those coaches. I'm not sure if Tony Vitello, I mean, he's a dynamic recruiter and he's energetic and he'd get bring that youthful presence, uh, whether he's, he's up for it, I'm sure he would listen. He's young enough to where he doesn't have the roots. I think in Knoxville long enough to where he would, uh, he, he could be uprooted, um, unless Tennessee just made a, a ridiculous counter offer if he, if he was offered. So <clears throat> I would just be, it'd be pure conjecture right now, uh, but based on who I think they've talked to by now, I mean, maybe Godwin Vitello, uh, something like that, or there might be somebody out there that you haven't talked to. But once again, I want to stress to all the people who might have the freak out factor because LSU might be having some people out there interviewing. It is like the final four. There are, there are lots of division one coaches in Omaha, Nebraska right now. It's like the final four in basketball where a lot of interviews take place. If you want to go meet with a bunch of coaches and you want to do that and, and make it easy on yourself, then take your Learjet out to Omaha, Nebraska and get a hotel room and interview a bunch of people because there's going to be a lot of people out there that would be willing to talk to you and it'd be easier just to get a bunch of different viewpoints and perspectives while you're out there. If I had to make a guess, I would go with Cliff Godwin. And I think we're all guessing, but I don't know. I just think that a lot of these coaches that Scott Woodward is targeting have got pretty good situations where they are, and, and frankly, I think the expectations at LSU have gotten out of control at times. I think that when LSU dominated, it was a different time and a different era. Uh, I think, I don't know if it was you or someone else who told me that the fans down there basically drove Maneri crazy. Uh, you could kind of see it on his face and hear it in his voice at times. I don't know. I think there's a lot of places in the league where you can win big without all the baggage that comes in Baton Rouge. Yeah, and... LSU is under the microscope right now. Uh, I think more than any school, uh, any school around, just based on everyone's looking to see what they're going to do. Are they going to 
overpay for someone or throw a bunch of money at someone, football money as, as it's been called, uh, that would really skew the national landscape for a lot of teams. Because if you're going to pay, uh, let's just say they go out and they pay a, a coach, McDonald at LSU, and pay him $2.5 million to get him to leave Louisville. I'm just throwing that out there, not saying that's going to happen. Well, then all of a sudden you're going to have coaches who look at that situation and say, well, wait a minute, I've been to Omaha this many times or have their agents say, my client has been to Omaha this many times, um, you know, and what about him? And now we're going to have to increase pay. And as Kyle Peterson mentioned several weeks ago, the, the move by Maneri retiring made a bunch of people a lot of money in more ways than one. A lot of coaches around there. We're either going to go to LSU or they're going to get paid not to go to LSU or going to get paid not to talk to LSU. And I think that's going to be happened there. But a lot the LSU's under the microscope, and I'm sure they like it. They like being under the microscope. They, they, they've been the kings of college baseball, although, albeit not lately on a consistent level. But they, for the, you know, in the 90s and 2000s, LSU could get whoever they want, however they wanted, and in and, and, and any manner known – uh, that was legal, illegal, whatever, to, to get people to talk to them. People would would go in droves. And even there was an article I read um, where, I mean, Corbin did talk to him before. Uh, I think he was quoted as saying it was an honor to talk to LSU about their program. And why wouldn't it be? But it's a lot of things have cha- changed since then. Um, you know, Corbin's won two national titles, and he's been, what, 14, 15 years in a row as going to the NCAA tournament. So a lot has happened since that last conversation. Okay, Musa asks, is the idea that a team, quote, unquote, has it more of a hindsight concept or is it actually something that you can observe during the path to a title? What I'm really asking is whether or not Chris or Chip can promise a (laughs) national championship this year. I like the question. (laughs) You know, each year is different. It's, it's, as they've said, the whole defending champion thing is such a um, – I knew it was going to be once the lost year last year um, with COVID, and the, this team would be defending. And as I think C.J. C. Rodriguez said, you know, he was in high school when that happened. I mean, you know, these kids uh, – so to compare whether the 2019 team had it uh, and this team, whether I was sitting here in Nashville or, you know, I was out in Omaha the last series and 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 – whether that team had it in my mind that they were going to win it all. Um, you know, there, there's, they're totally different teams and how they get it done too. And the landscape's different too. The opponents are different too, uh, as far as how their strengths and weaknesses. So does this team um, have the, uh, I think this team has the tradition and the leader to get them there and to prepare them to win a national title. Um, and I want to kind of say, uh, tell me, I'll, I'll tell you after tonight, because I really do believe, and I'm, I'm saying this right now, every game, the next game is the most important. And that sounds so cliche, but it is such a decided advantage when you win your first two games in Omaha, it, the way the tournament is set up and the days in between of rest that you get, you win tonight, you don't play till Friday. That is, that is such a huge advantage as far as rest pitching um the way that someone has to beat you twice it stacks up if you win that game as far as how your pitching goes for the championship series compared to a team that has to basically use their their guns to beat you twice and get out of it and and get to the championship series so i think there are definitely this team is really young 
So for me to sit there and say they got it and and they've got what it takes, sure they've got um, they've got the talent to do it. But the way the thing that bothers me a little bit is just there's some holes that I talked about five ten minutes ago that could be exploited if they didn't um, if they don't get the bats rolling and we don't the strengths. I mean, if you got Enrique Bradfield, when Enrique Bradfield does more than stealing bases. And that's my concern that he hasn't been stealing bases the last two weeks. It's what it causes the defense to do. They rush balls. They pay more attention to him at first base. They're, they're the pitcher's uh, distraction as far as not paying attention to the hitter. I mean, that's that's proven. You can just tell how they freeze up. And so little intangible things like that that I'm noticing. I want to see him run. I want to see him get, the, get them to uh, put the wheels in motion to try to worry about him. And I want to see some more consistency between our one through four, one through five guys. And if that happens, then yeah, sure. Uh, this team can win a national title. Um, I'll let you say, he asked us both. Uh, what, what are your thoughts? Well, these hit on some things that are kind of pet peeves of mine. That Nothing is more overrated than has it or doesn't have it uh, other than maybe momentum. Uh, ask NC State about momentum after it got beat 21 to one in Fayetteville in, in game one. Um, and then we know what happened from there. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, I, I just, I think people read way too much into stuff. I, I, I watch the game threads. Sometimes I'll watch Twitter and I'm like, if I went by how I felt on stuff and, and God knows I have followed Vanderbilt baseball from my media perspective, uh, more than anybody who's ever lived. I promise you, if, if I went by how I felt at certain moments about what's about to happen, I'm wrong more often than not. I just think people looking for little things. I, I have not seen anything in this team all year that has been like a real concern. Like, of course there are things that that you look at and you say, well, yeah, if they got undone in Omaha, uh, it might be because the middle of the order struck out a bunch of times. That could happen. There are things with anybody and everything that could happen. We could look back and say they didn't win this thing because the big inning got to rocker and lighter. And we've seen that before, right? But would he also yeah. look back and say, well, of course they were going to win this thing. Nobody's got two arms like Rocker and Lighter. No, oh, by the way, the bullpen gets shortened. Uh, and your starting rotation gets shortened. And maybe you can get through this thing with five arms if you play it right. And, and God knows they got five or six, seven, eight arms that, that could do this. I think people read more into things than I'm comfortable reading into. And I, I just don't understand sometimes. I, I mean, I do understand. It's the fandom. And it's the emotion. It's it's venting. It's wanting to to explain something here and now and, and reach a conclusion and a hot take. Uh, but that's just not how baseball works. I mean, this team, I've, I've been consistent. You can go back and read what I've written and listen to what I've said. I think this team is a team that, to me, I liked it better than anybody else in the country when everybody was on Arkansas. Vanderbilt was my pick to win this tournament before the tournament started. Now, look, I also picked Texas, and you saw how that went. But and let me let me flip the script, okay? I know from enough people in Knoxville, from doing shows out there and just having friends in that fan base, they have started this. And I'm not saying this to be critical. This is just how it works, right? This feels like a team of destiny, and every time they hit a walk-off home run, uh, or get a big hit to win it late, and they had God knows how many comebacks. It just adds to that feeling, and, and you and I probably felt that when we watched Vanderbilt 2007, and we know how that ended. 
I just think people read way too much into stuff, uh, you know, and then all of a sudden you, you look what happened to Tennessee yesterday, just run to a brick wall in Virginia and a pitcher on the mound that they couldn't hit. I don't see problematic things that, that preclude them from winning a national title. Now, maybe that's how it's not going to work out, but right now, from where they sit today, Monday morning, I still like their chances better than anybody. Yeah, and, and just the way the tournament is set up compared to the SEC tournament. The SEC, it's the same format. Uh, it's just spread out over a 10, 12-day period, and that's why um, I've been emphatic about when you have a couple studs like they do have and, and the, you know, the ESPN, uh, those guys have, have made a point of it, of saying that's why they predict Vanderbilt to be in the, in the title series because of the format, the way they can spread those guys out. And, and regardless, I mean, you look at who pitched in, in 2019, the leash gets really, really short. I mean, you know, Arizona threw a bunch of guys the other night and, you know, that really they've been a team. And we, I talked about this last week where, they haven't got had guys that go out there, although, you know, Sosa threw six and a third inning. They threw six pitchers in the very first game. Now, granted, some of them were two-thirds of an inning or one, but when you can the, – the leash gets really, really short on guys you count on, and that happened in 2019. You saw probably two or three guys who didn't even get an appearance in the College World Series for Vanderbilt in 2019. So I think you're going to see what you end up having is you got probably four to you got like six guys you're going to count on to get you out of situation unless unless you just get in that losers bracket where it's out of necessity. But you're you get your guys who are comfortable, you're comfortable with the, with how they their heartbeats going, how they're going to handle the situation you go with them and you, instead of relying on, you know, 11 12 guys, it's more like six seven guys that you can count on. Dusty Orleans asked a good question because I wanted your take on this. I don't know what to make of the way he started. Uh, did Rocker's pitch count or pitch choice seem odd? He seemed to throw a lot of changeups during that first inning. It reminded me of some of his other rough starts towards the end of the regular season. Once he got back to fastball and sliders in the second, he was vintage Rocker. Any thoughts as to why he didn't establish his two main pitches early? Honest to God, I, I watched it, and the question he has was mine too. Now look. Let me preface that by saying maybe they had some intel uh, that that was a, a team that, that couldn't hit a changeup. I don't know. I don't want to be completely critical of the coaching staff without knowing everything there. And, and the, the press conference was so short, we didn't get a chance to ask that question. But how do you process what he's asking there? Well, I like the the visit by Scott Brown in the first inning. And, and I think uh, Peterson hit it nail on the head like this is what – the plan possibly was that we had going in. Now we need to go away from that. Cause you rarely see 73, 72 miles an hour on anything from rocker on the radar gun. And you were seeing that a couple of times. And I think it was mentioned that he saw change up. Um, the, those guys saw change up two or three times in which they haven't really seen that, especially that early. And that that's when probably the visit by Scott Brown was, let's reestablish what you are and let's just scrap what we maybe went through uh, pregame as far as we're going to attack these guys. Because when Kumar Rocker gets that slider over that's dropping at your at your ankles and lands at your foot, uh, though, that's really hard to deal with. And I think he established, reestablished the fastball and went back to that game plan. And I would say, you know, he threw 100 pitches. And you look at the, the – I, I was worried about from if he was going to get out of the third or fourth inning. But he was able to be efficient there – 
um, you know, except for the home run that was given up, the, the, the bomb by Holgate, he pitched really, really well. And I think Tim Corbin said he kept us in the game. And that's what he, uh, the best thing that he did from that point on, kept them in the game within striking distance to where they could come back. And, and of course, they got the three runs in the seventh uh, to get him out of, uh, get him off the hook. So that's what impressed me the most. With a guy like him, sometimes you can overthink a little bit too much with a, a hot-hitting team like Arizona, one of the best in the country. And I think he just made that simple adjustment, and I think that was important and, and won him the game, really, because without if, if that game gets out of hand real early and they get more than the three spot in the first, that could have been a really, really uh, tall task to come back from. All right, I want to get your thoughts on some other parts of the bracket, starting with Stanford, Arizona. I think if you're Vanderbilt, you would be more than fine if Stanford took care of Arizona today. Stanford's got two really good pitchers uh, in their starting rotation, and then it drops off precipitously from there. Their bullpen's not that great. Uh, I think, and you never know, right, that Vanderbilt could could win tonight and and then face Stanford in a game three and something goes wrong and that gets get beat eight two and it's a be careful what you wish for but from where I sit right now with what I know uh Stanford has got a better pitching edge in this one they're both really good offenses and I think that if Stanford eliminates Arizona available gets in the winner's bracket they're in really good shape just because I, I think that Stanford's pitching after Beck who got hit around pretty good by NC State uh and their second guy whose name escapes me at the moment I'll get it in a minute I I just think that you know, to me, I would rather face Stanford uh, than Arizona again after what I saw. Yeah, and you, these teams played each other. Remember, they about 45 days ago, 40 days ago, they played May 7th, 8th, and 9th in Stanford. Stanford um, lost the first game five to Arizona. Arizona lost the first game five to four and then put a shellacking on Stanford 20 to two in the second game. And then lost the series on on Sunday, eight to two. So Stanford has taken two out of three, but you kind of have that Arkansas North Carolina State game sort of in between, where Arizona put twenty on the board, which Arizona has been known to do, put multiple multiple games. We talked about that last week, where they've scored more than ten runs, I think fifteen times on their schedule this year. So uh, there's that familiarity that the, those two teams will have, and I, I would think. On paper, Vanderbilt would probably rather face Stanford just based on the, uh, on the prolific offense that Arizona has and, and the pitching situation you mentioned. But, you know, that 20-2 to two game that you mentioned in May, I mean, that they, they, Arizona scored a, almost a run in every inning. As a matter of fact, the only running they didn't score, the inning they didn't score was in the seventh. They pounded out 15 hits. So those teams are really, really familiar. And it's one of those, it can go either way. You've seen that in Omaha before where SEC teams face each other. And there's sometimes it's almost too familiar and you start overthinking and you start doing, you know, overshifting and pitching around guys that you normally wouldn't in situations based on just your raw data that you have from when you played them. And instead of just going out there and, and playing it to your strength. So uh, that'll be a um, a game to watch, and and it'll give you an indication as far as the what those two teams. Because of course, one of them's going home after this game uh, this afternoon, and and um, I would say, yeah, Vanderbilt would probably rather play Stanford based on the pitching performance of what they have depth wise, and plus the fact that Arizona just they're just so strong on the offensive side when they when their bats get going, 
uh, they can be pretty prolific. Well, one piece of context here. Um, in that game, too, Arizona, st- or excuse me, Stanford started Quinn Matthews, who's not been very good. He's a lefty, had a 6.15 ERA coming into the tournament. That's the game that Arizona won 22. They threw Alex Williams in game three. Williams has been phenomenal this year. He's got a, what is his ERA? Um, 306, but the numbers suggest he's better than that. He's only given up 1.04 runners per innings pitch. That's outstanding. He doesn't walk a lot of guys. Decent strikeout rate. That's who Arizona is going to see today, and Arizona did not hit him well the first time. Yeah, and and um, yeah, those those games sometimes um, when you, it, it does it is very important to see who pitched in them when you see those games that get out of hand. And I think, goodness, uh, Stanford, like you said, pitched seven guys in that twenty to two loss. Any thoughts on what you saw on the other side of the bracket before we end today? No, just a, uh, it was a little surprising to me uh, that Tennessee. Um, lost like they did you know Virginia got up pretty quickly in that you know the first couple frames and then UT was never able to muster anything uh, across and some people have written and made comments that you know is the stage too big for this UT team that you know the glass slipper is not going to fit anymore once they get on the big and you've got a, a, a team with Virginia whose coaching staff has been there quite a few times um albeit not in the last year or two, but they've had, of course, that run in 2014, 2015. So they've got a guy who, who's, who's been there and knows the routine. Um, Mississippi State, uh, you know, boy, they're a team that I, I would not want to see in the championship series. That I think I said that several weeks ago when we played them here in Nashville. They're just a team that bothers me a little bit as far as how good their depth is and uh, how they spray the ball around and how – old they are I think they're a very mature team they got a lot of older guys who've been through the battles so if I had to pick a team that I think is going to come out of there right now I think it's going to be Mississippi State who's going to come out of that bracket number two just on the on, on the premise that I think they have the bats and they have the deep pitching staff that they could even if they lost a game uh, if they lost to Virginia which I don't think they're going to they could um battle back and, and beat a team twice. But I think Mississippi State sitting in the catbird seat, if they win tonight and, and uh, playing on Friday, they're in a heck of a position uh, having to face somebody who's got to beat them twice. And I think they're the team to beat, honestly, in the in bracket two. Well, I thought the best four teams out of that bracket coming in were one, Texas, two, Tennessee, three, Mississippi State, four, Virginia. So one of the two best is going home tomorrow. Um, frankly, and state's pitching drops off a good bit after Sims and Bedner, who were phenomenal. Uh, McLeod has been very uneven for them. Uh, Virginia really after Abbott, I just think a lot of what they've done, they've got some talent, but I think there's been a smoke and mirrors element to it. So I think I'd rather, if I'm Vanderbilt, I'd rather see Virginia than Mississippi state, but I would much rather see one of those teams than, than the other two. Yeah, and, and I'm very curious to see how Tennessee gets off the mat here against Texas because that's, a, like you said, one of them's going home, and, and I'll be interested to see if, if Tennessee has any spunk left and, and can get off the carpet because that the way they played yesterday, not scratch and run across, has to be very concerning for, for Vitello, and, and uh, 
I don't know. It's easy to say that the moment's too big for them, that, that, that they've just kind of, uh, you know, big ballpark, which I'm not sure a lot of, uh, I didn't get a chance to see a lot of that game yesterday, but how many balls were hit that, you know, these, you had guys who were launch angles have to be adjusted, but that is a huge difference. Uh, that's a very different ballpark than Lindsey Nelson stadium. And um, I, I wouldn't count Tennessee totally out. I, I could see them eliminating Texas. Um, but I, I would say that there's there's a lot of work to be done. I think you'll be able to tell real early if they're there or they're two and two and done. Um, I think it'll be a, a good ball game. What are they playing? Are they playing tomorrow? And then that's a yeah. Is that a two o'clock game? So yeah, and and where it gets a little crazy too at this point is it always seems to rain at some point in in Omaha. Uh, midweek after the first weekend the, you get some storms i think there were some storms in the midwest last night uh in in the illinois area and those storms do pop up and when they pop up they can be long lasting it can really affect the schedule and then of course affects your pitching schedule too so lots of lots of baseball to be played and i'm looking forward to tonight all right chip tell folks about your real estate business before we end the show today well, just make it quick here. It's still a, a great market. The the market numbers actually came back for uh, the month of May. They've just come in and a little bit down as far as comparatively. But what what are you comparing it to? I mean, it was the, the last five six months have been crazy as far as the real estate market is sales and production. But things might be slowing down just a hair. But don't let that scare you. It's still looking at the numbers today. Still very much of a seller's market. The sellers are getting multiple offers. The buyers are having to scratch and claw and, and overbid, and that's still a, a reality. So my purpose in telling you that is is to promote our company, Frederick & Clark Realty. We've been around since the 1960s. We're Vanderbilt folks. Vanderbilt principals in the agency are all Vanderbilt graduates, so Vanderbilt fans support the athletic department. And we have over 180 agents in two locations that can help your listeners, your podcast listeners, with their real estate needs or advice that they might have in this market. So give us a call. Call me personally at 615-327-4800. Check our website out. It's very interactive. You can look and compare homes in your homes in your neighborhood, see what's out there in your price range, and, and we can give you a detailed analysis on the buy or sell side to help, uh, help you out in this crazy process in the world that we're still in in real estate. So check us out on the web at frederickandclark.com. Or call me personally, 615-327-4800. You can also ask for Whit Clark, Vanderbilt grad, and a big baseball supporter who listens to these podcasts, and we can help you out with any of your real estate needs. Hey, Chip, thanks a bunch. We'll see you soon. Talk to you soon, Chris. All right, he's Chip Frederick. I'm Chris Lee. Thank you for listening to the Vandy Sports Podcast. We'll have more episodes coming later this week. That probably depends on how the baseball schedule plays out. But anyway, thank you for listening, and we'll catch you again later in the week.